Working Life, a podcast that provides you with tools, inspiration, and resources so you can enjoy your career and love your life. I'm Caroline Dowd Higgins. I'm a speaker and a career and executive coach. And today I am so thrilled to welcome a very dear friend, Marilyn Delborg Delfis. Marilyn, welcome to the show. I'm so thrilled to have you on today. Thank you so much, Caroline. And um, first, I want to apologize to your audience for my French accent, even after 30 years in the United States. Well, I think your French accent is gorgeous, and I welcome you and your accent to the show. But we are going <laughs> to you. talk about your wonderful new book, which is called Everybody Wants to Love Their Job, Rebuilding Trust and Culture. And Marilyn, I want to ask right off the bat, you know, self-help literature and the abundance of books to help employees cope with their professional environment are really plentiful. So where does this book fit in? So, yes, that the self-help industry is huge, about $10 billion in the U.S. alone, I think. And as far as the workplace is concerned, there is an avalanche of advice for people to better handle the bad boss, conflicts with colleagues, boredom, burnout, salary increase, request, abuse, discrimination, sexism, and lots of other things. And all of this is great and certainly helps employees to take a deep breath and bear with problems that hurt them. However, the limitation of this approach is that in many cases, people feel encouraged, compelled to make their best efforts to fit in to avoid a worse situation. So my book is not really self-help for employees, but it provides them with an explanation of why they could be unhappy. And so look at it as a sort of crash course about the business. You know, as people, we know everything about our environment in life, about all the appliances we have in our home, but very few employees are familiar with how companies actually work. So by reading the book, I hope that uh, many people will be empowered to be able to speak up. And they can also have a subtle strategy. For example, they can leave the book on their desk and make sure that their manager see it, or they can give it as a present to their manager. I like that idea. And what a great opportunity in this holiday season to think about that. That's brilliant. Thank you for helping me understand that and our, our global listening audience. So let's let's go further. What are the most common factors, Marilyn, that contribute to employee disenchantment and a dysfunctional work culture. You're so correct. Many, many people are unhappy. So what are the factors that contribute to that? So a good way to assess the most common factors uh, that contribute to employee disenchantment is to go, uh, on, to go through their remarks on Glassdoor, for example. And I browsed for my book through about three or 400 companies of all sizes and found that about, uh, about 60 recurrent topics that evolve around three main themes. One, management culture organization. Two, employee well-being. And three, product customer care and market strength. So for example, 
On the management and culture side, you find remarks such as politics, self-promotion, self-preservation, culture of blame, the dog-eat culture, dog-eat-dog culture, sorry, Mm -hmm. take-down culture, employees' uh, opinions not value. On the uh, employee well-being front, you find skills not used productively, no feedback, no career path, um, no possibilities for promotion, useless meetings, irrelevant metrics, and so forth. And on the product customer care side, you find product deficiency, loss of competitive advantage, no focus on innovation and whatnot. Employers in large organizations tend to be to, to dwell more on things like outrageous senior leadership turnover, lack of strategic direction, layoff making no sense, for example. So the common thread is a discrepancy between how companies brand themselves on the web and what employees find when they move in, between their officially stated values and the way things are really done inside. It's like hoping to get a Hermes or Chanel bag and getting a plastic purse (laughs) that reads of sweatshop. (laughs) So the the discrepancy is enhanced by an increasing dissonance between our workplace and our life in general. As consumers, we are empowered to choose products. We can expect an immediate response when we have a problem. We can broadcast to the whole world if we are happy or, or or unhappy with what we buy. But the very same companies that empower us as consumers ask us to be a different persona if we work for them. We cannot speak to the boss of our boss. And suggestions or complaints we may have disappear in the company's bureaucracy and are flat out discarded. So it's no wonder that 70% of employees are disengaged, either mildly or sometimes completely. Yeah. And, you know, that number hasn't changed in the past decade. I I think it's interesting to see that we haven't really moved the needle on that 70% number. So I hear you and I understand what you're saying. You talk about this in the book. What are your strategies for managers listening around the world to rebuild their culture from the ground up? So changing the culture is definitely a leadership initiative, ideally coming from the top. But I like the idea that you ask the question from the manager's level point of view and uh, that you ask me what they can do. It's true that a manager cannot rebuild the entire company culture from the ground up, but managers have a far greater power than what they usually believe they have. So every single manager can look at her team as a startup microcosm, hire and manage her team as if her service or department were a startup. So this requires, does it make sense? Yes, it does, absolutely. So this requires two, three things. Attention to the hiring process attention to the team structure 
and attention to every single employee's personal development capabilities. So let me start with the attention to the hiring process. In a startup, we want any candidate to be interviewed by the rest of the team. Okay, so at least four people, sometimes five people, sometimes six people. And we know uh, when we are a startup that a company is not a collection of individuals, even though we hire people individually. So each new employee will be a member of a community. And this sense of community must start before they want. So all the people in your team must interview any newcomer. And also, managers in a larger organization must fight a totally asinine practice. The allocation of a budget that must be used by a certain date, or otherwise they will lose it. So as a manager, you rush to use up your budget And then it doesn't take too long for you to realize that two people out of the 10 people you have in your team should not be part of it. So scale this to a company before you you even think of it. 20% of your workforce is out of place. Second, attention to the way a team operates. So the human magic in startups is due to the cohesiveness that organizational literature uh, literature sees as the secret of great teams. A smaller number of people federated around a clear project, and this team uh, effectiveness is defined by five ingredients. One, psychological safety. Can we take the risk um, to express what we think and feel? Second, dependability. Can we count on each other to do high-quality work on time? Third, structure and clarity. Are the goals, roles, and execution execution plans well spelled out? Fourth, meaning of work. Are we working on something personally important to each of us? And five, impact of work. Do we fundamentally believe that the work we are doing matters? So the employee in a startup, is, every single employee in a startup, is, feels individually indispensable. They f- everybody feels important. So the attention to the way the team operates supposes that the manager has a converse, conversational relationship uh, with the rest, the entire team, and this, and make sure that Every single person in the team has visibility on what she does and that the team itself has visibility on what teams upstream and downstreams also do. So that's the attention to the way the team operates. And third, the attention to personal uh, development of people. After 18 months, most people are bored or can be bored. So it's the duty of a great manager to help people grow. And sometimes they will grow out of our own team or own department. So a great manager must make sure that she avoids to become what is usually called a talent hoarder, meaning 
talent hoarding being the habit of keeping an employee in her current role and preventing her from exploring other opportunities in the company. A great manager finds opportunities to her, to people in her team in other teams. Uh, so if one manager starts to show leadership, a second manager will, a third manager will, and that's rebuilding the culture from the ground up. Managers can lead, by example, and encourage their colleagues to do the same. It's not always easy to behave as a leader. They can be, they can be crushed also, just like any other employees. But if they resist, they can have an enormous impact. Marilyn, thank you. This is incredible information. I'm going to ask you to hold on, and we'll be right back after a quick break. Your working life is powered by your stories. We want to hear more from our listeners about your experiences in the workplace. Tell us what challenges you've overcome or tips you've learned along the way. And even better, if you don't have the answers, let us know what issues you want to learn more about. We want this podcast to serve you in all of your career and life needs. Send me an email at caroline at carolinedoubthiggins.com. Marilyn, you are one of the first European women to start a tech company in Silicon Valley. And you've been the CEO of four companies. So this book, I'm sure, has been an incredible experience for you to share with millions of other people around the world. And I was so grateful to hear about your ideas to rebuild the culture from ground up. In the book, you also talk about hiring for potential and impact rather than for one task or a person. Tell me more about how we can hire for potential and impact. Okay, let me um, tell you a little bit of uh, not hiring for potential, maybe. So most companies adopt a tactical approach to hiring. It's about finding one person for one task and one purpose. It's like telling people that their raison d'etre is to fill holes. But then how can you reasonably expect that they will ever be creative if needed. By only focusing on short-term pressures, chances are that you will evaluate people solely based on the fixed skills you think you need right now and not what they could do if they perform at their maximum. You will just end up lowering the bar and settling for the minimum. If you give low goals, to your salespeople, they will never surpass them. I like the analogy that Chris Rose gave in his book, Judgment on the Frontline. If you buy a turtle and put it in a small aquarium, it will stop growing to accommodate its limited living space, regardless of how large it might have potentially been. Hiring for potential is hiring strategically. The new hire may not may be a reasonable match for the short term, perhaps not quite checking all the boxes at a given stage, but her resume will show an ability to learn, 
that will enable her to catch up quickly and keep on acquiring new skills. That's what you do if you are confident that people can learn and evolve. And if the leadership culture uh, is one of growth rather than fixed mindset, to use the expression created by Carol Dweck. So let's say you need a marketing manager. Will your best candidate be somebody who studied marketing and communication? Maybe not. Uh, what about somebody who is familiar with video games and is mentally ready to look at your current and future products in both physical and virtual terms? So a candidate who took classes in cinematography or script writing and loved the magic of being immersed in multiple worlds may be a much stronger choice for your marketing position. It may not take much time for her, for, the, for the, uh, this new candidate to get up to speed with what we see today as required skills for a marketing manager. So hiring for potential is building up the springboard that enables you to think ahead in a fast-paced business environment. Samuel Cray, who designed the fastest computers in the world for decades, uh, like to hire inexperienced engineers, okay, because they do not usually know what's supposed to be impossible, he used to say. So if you hire for potential, you are also more likely to hire a more diverse crowd. If you look for only people who have done it before, you are only replicating what you have. If you look for people for the potential, for what they have done, for their monthly resumes, then you'll be able to hire more women, more uh, people of color, because you'll see that they have a more diverse history. Fantastic. Now, Marilyn, you are immersed in the innovative tech world of Silicon Valley. And all of this uh, makes sense, everything that you're telling us. But what about the new workplace and future trends around the rest of the world and in different industries that are a little slow to adapt? How can they come up to speed with this concept? So first off, let me tell you that innovative, innovative tech firms in Silicon Valley are not always more forward thinking than companies in other parts in the country. They, they also want to find ready to use cogs, even if those cogs are more expensive. Um, many companies in Silicon Valley offer formal corporate training and learning programs, but they're not successful. Uh, if they were, they will not be whining about skills shortage. So uh, Silicon Valley firms are not, I mean, they're probably more snobs, but they're not necessarily better than uh, otherwise uh, in other places. So in most companies in Silicon Valley or elsewhere, um, they do not prepare for the future of work because they have a hard time imagining their own future. They have a short-term vision. And that's true everywhere in the world. So getting ready for the future of work is based on a leader's decision to continuously update her vision, hire for potential, and develop a renaissance-oriented culture, which means three things. One, 
encouraging online courses, e-learning. So most companies that complained about not finding employees with the right skill are living today already with a foot in the past century. Reskilling opportunities are all over the place. And if you define your company as a learning organization, you won't be obsolete. Second, you must encourage peer education. In the 21st century, creating bridges between people with different areas of expertise is paramount. It's key for engineers to be familiar with sales and marketing, as well as for sales and marketing people to understand technology and to learn the principle, uh, principles and the basics of coding. So interdisciplinary conversation does not simply encourage encourage knowledge sharing. They also stimulate the imagination of everybody. So realize one thing, artificial intelligence, virtual reality, augmented reality are not for engineers. They are for everybody in the company. And also, of course, mentoring. Okay, uh, Mentoring uh, every single employee uh, and helping employees to find mentors everywhere in the company and certainly not being mentored by their own boss, okay? Uh, as well as reverse mentoring. Uh, anybody who is 40 can learn so much from somebody who is 20. So in short, preparing for the future is not very hard. It's mostly about refusing the idea of becoming anachronistic. It's about having a growth mindset for oneself for all the people around us and for the company. Well said. Marilyn, you write about human infrastructure and how it engages the hearts and souls of employees. Tell us why this matters. Yeah, I like to speak of uh, human infrastructure and I really appreciate that you noticed it. So I like to speak of human infrastructure to emphasize that a company is not an abstract entity. It's populated with people, which means with human beings for whom work is not simply a means to an end, but their daily experience, which is a daily dose of positive and negative emotions. We can streamline our technology infrastructure or our supply chain pretty easily. But if we neglect the human element, we lose tons and tons of money. The cost of disengagement in developed countries stands between 5 and 10% of their GDP. That's a huge financial waste. And that's hurting organizations individually. In fact, most researchers over the past 30 years show that poor management of the workforce and mediocre employee loyalty boil down to losing between 20 and 30% in profit. Think of one simple detail. You run a 100 people company. You have a 10% turnover rate, which is lower than average. For example, in the US, it's 18%. You may have simply lost $600,000 in profit for the year. So yes, taking care of the human infrastructure is a lot of work. Depending on whether you take this task seriously or not, you will have a vibrant culture 
are oppositely a toxic culture. Your people will feel they belong or they won't belong. That's as simple as this. And Marilene, as we wrap up the podcast today, tell us about WorkRise. And you talk about how it can evaluate employees' emotions. And I love this word, their level of belongingness. Tell us about that. Yes. Um, WorkRise is a company I co-founded, and I used um, a lot of the uh, data that we collected uh, when um, working with multiple customers. So traditional surveys are offered once a year or every other year are obviously insufficient. As you noticed before, disengagement of employees has not diminished. Okay. So what is needed uh, are instruments that provide a true picture of how employees feel about the workplace and about their work. And so at WorkRise, we have adopted a methodology derived from the extensive work of researchers for the assessments of the subjective well-being of people in general. And more specifically, we have uh, adopted the the work of Nobel Prize winner in behavioral economics, uh, Daniel Kahneman. So we invite people to take two-minute check-ins twice a day for one or two weeks. And we do this between two times and four times a year. So in each check-in, employees indicate their main activity during the past hour, report their emotions on a scale of one to 10. So we selected nine positive and negative emotions, happy, frustrated, confident, worried, valued, bored, stressed, tired, enjoying what I'm doing. So based on that information, we can assess the net effect of employees in any given activity. So the net effect is the average of the positive emotion minus the average of the negative ones. And we can also calculate the U-index, which defines the proportion of time in which the highest rated feeling is a negative one. So we aggregate all the data on the company side. And uh, in the meanwhile, though, employees have their own record of all the responses they gave. So they have, so to speak, their own personal emotional Fitbit. So the aggregated net effect gives the overall mood of the company. So it's clear that a lower net effect can reflect a serious malaise, and oppositely, a higher net effect is indicative of a vibrant culture. So given the huge combination of data that are contextualized, we can offer a granular analysis of what the workplace is about. And we can enable management to tailor solutions to to problems as they are experienced by employees. So the important thing in this approach is that culture is not about abstract values, such as respect, talent, innovation, creativity, and whatnot. Even terrible companies claim they have these values on their websites because nobody would say, well, we value lack of respect, lack of innovation, lack of talent, lack of creativity, right? So culture is what employees feel and the complex sets of emotions that they express or suppress. 
the more they suppress them, the more toxic the, comp- the culture of the company is. The more they express positive emotion, the more vibrant the culture, and the more successful the company. Marilene, I learned so much from you today. I always do. And I'm so grateful for your willingness to share your, your time and your expertise about the book. Thank you for being with me today. Thank you so much. You are so welcome. And I want to tell our global listening audience how they can buy your book. The title is Everybody Wants to Love Their Job, Rebuilding Trust and Culture. And of course, it's available on Amazon and all major book retailers. I've got my copy right here and I've got it highlighted and paper clipped and dog-eared. And I know you will enjoy this incredible resource. I'm grateful for the strategies and the action steps. And I've learned so much, Marilene. Thank you for being with me today. Thank you so much again. And thank you for your great questions. Absolutely. And to all of you listening, if you like the show, subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud and even better, leave us a review. And here's why. When you leave a review, it helps people find us online. And do let us know what career-minded issues you would like for me to discuss on a future show. You can find me at Twitter at Higgins. And I always want to recognize my extraordinary podcast colleagues, Laura Deck, Executive Director of Publicity and Communications, and Claire McInerney, Executive Producer. Thank you for the extraordinary work you do to make this show fabulous for our audience. I'm Caroline Dowd-Higgins. Thanks for listening.